continue our journey through um, the uh, Peter's second letter. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, Peter writes, What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit, and the, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you so much, God, for the ability to come and to preach today. Father God, for this opportunity. I pray, God, now for ability. I pray, God, that, that the prayer in the middle of the night, Father God, and the early morning and the late night and all those things, God, that go into this. Father God, I, pay, I pray, God, that it pays dividends. It has fruit right now, Father. But I know, God, that I can't, that my, I have to labor, Father, to do this. But, Father God, I know this is a blessing that you have to give. That I must have been obedient and submissive and, Father God, I must have been repentant um, in prayer and in study, Father God. And I must hear before I can tell. And so, Father God, I pray that I've heard your word in this. And that now, Father God, I'm willing and able to come in and tell. I pray, Father God, for this church that we'll hear. God, because I know what needs to happen in the church, Father, and I'm, I'm fearful that it's never going to happen in most churches, Father. I know what needs to happen. I know, God, that, that, uh, that we have to preach against sin like we've never preached before in our lives, Father. That there's no room, God, um, in, the, God in, in the preaching of the 21st century for us to be soft on ideas like sin. We have to preach against those things, Father. We have to take the Bible's warning seriously. And this is another warning. Not just, Father God, against, against false prophets, but against being false in general, Father. Against, uh, against lies, Father. And, Father God, against anyone who would... God, who would... Father God, against anyone who would be a believer, God, and tolerate in their own lives, Lord, any inconsistency. Now, that begins with me, Father. There have been far too many inconsistencies in my life, Father God. Far too many inconsistencies in my ministry, Father. I am humbled by knowledge of them, Father God. You brought them up to me again and again. And I'm ready, Father God, uh, through repentance, Father God, to continue, God, to submit those things to you. But that doesn't make the truth, Father God, less applicable to the rest of us. God, we've all got, got business at the altar today, Father God. It's the church, God, that, that's with such a sweet spirit. Such a, such a sense of family, Father God. But God, this is a time in which repentance has come upon the family too. And Father God, I pray God that we will hear. I don't know what's in this church today, Father God. I don't know what's in individual hearts or lives. But I know, Father God, that you sent me armed with the truth, God, that's piercing today. And I pray God for the power to preach it, Father God. I pray God for those things, those intangibles that I don't have, Father. And I don't want to make them up. I don't want... I don't want slick words, Father God, or tempting words, or trying words. I want, Father God, convicting words, things that can only come from you. I pray, God, for that now, Lord. I pray, God, for you to bless us as we gather, Lord, as we speak about the topic of sin, Father God, and, it's, and how destructive it is upon us, Lord. I pray, God, that we will, be, we will hear, Father God, and I pray, God, that hearts in this, in this place will, will react, God. In the name of Christ, I pray to you now, Lord. Amen. Now look, the Apostle Peter, he uses in this verse... Two illustrations that reveal just how deep um, his point concerning those who've abandoned that revealed faith and returned to the folly of the world, because that's what's happened. You've got these people, you've got false prophets, you've got their acolytes that go with them who've come and they've, they've heard the truth 
And in many ways they've benefited from this truth in a very temporal way. Their lives have improved a little bit. But in the long run, they have gone back to what's most familiar. Now, I think I've talked about this before, and this is in no way revealing the essence of what we really have to labor with today. But I know that many of us in this room can very vividly remember a day when we were not believers at all. At all. I mean, we were lost as we could possibly be. And we remember what it was like to interact with the world as a lost man or a lost woman. I've said many times, in in no way making fun of it, but when I was lost, the world didn't cause me problems. I could handle the world. I could speak their language very well. I didn't go home and cry over stuff when I was lost. I didn't have a tender heart when I was lost. I had a seared conscience when I was lost. And if somebody was ugly to me, I would say the worst possible thing to them that I could ever think of. And walk away without batting an eyelash about it. Because I was lost. I had no conscience from God to govern my actions. My, only, my interaction with the world became troublesome when I was born again. And the conscience was no longer seared. All of a sudden, I could just say what I wanted to say to anybody. Now, here's the problem. Is that I still remember those days. And there are times when I, and and probably some of you, are are caught in circumstances where you wish you could go back and and say those things you used to say. Because back then, you could could put people in their place, couldn't you? And now they're limitations. We live in a world of limitations. We live in a kingdom of limitations. We don't just say what we want to say and do what we want to do. No one, no one in the body of believers has the right to disregard the feelings of anybody. The lost world is predicated on the disregarding of any feelings but your own, right? And so there's still that temptation within us, is what I'm trying to get at. There's that deep temptation to go back to the world's ways. Because they were so familiar for so long. I lived that way for so long. I got good at it. And now God's expecting me to act in a way that can feel alien at times. But it's really the new nature. It's really who I am now. So, so when, when Peter talks about these things, he gives us two examples. Now one comes straight out of the Bible. Proverbs 26 verse 11. Solomon wrote... Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Now, dog people, we've all experienced, and I'm not particularly a dog person, we've all experienced the fact that dogs are capable of doing things that humans will never do. I mean consuming things that come out of them. Right? And the more you squeal, the more they seem to enjoy it, right? Humans would never do that. Never do that. So that's, 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 uh, that's Solomon's example. And, and Peter latches on to it. Now the second one, the, the sow and the, and the returning to her mire or her wallow, is one that either Peter invents himself. Peter comes up with that one. It's very good. Or it's one that's just prevalent within his culture. 
that we just don't have a written record of. We don't really know. We don't really know. But we, we attribute it to Peter because in writing it's the first place it occurs. Okay, just, just saying that. The most important issue that Peter's making is that the nature of sin is such a massive barrier to salvation. First and foremost, that sin nature is what keeps people from becoming saved under their own impetus or power. Without a nature of sin, men and women could very well decide for Christ. With a nature of sin, God must act. Because if He doesn't act, they'll never find Him. Because their nature is to do the exact opposite. Their nature is to wallow in the mire. Their nature is to return to their vomit. That's the way people are naturally. So that is such an impediment to salvation. It took the cross and the Holy Spirit and, and the, the literally supernatural gospel of Jesus Christ to overcome what is hardwired into people because of the curse. The, the Adamic curse. It's born into us. We are like that by nature. Also, it is an intense and lingering impediment to Christian growth. So what I really mean to say is this, is, is along with the fact that we have to preach against sin as an enormous part of the declaration of the gospel so that lost men and women can find their way to the cross, cross by way of the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and that intersection with the word, the gospel. At the same time, we better hammer on the church every Sunday the danger of sin. Sin is no less dangerous to you right now than it was when you were lost. And in fact, I'm going to say this, you were much more tolerant of sin. As I pointed out, someone could have been accidentally rude to me and I would cuss them. Walk away without feeling bad with my seared conscience. And that very obvious sinful reaction that I had caused me no problem at all. Didn't bother my heart one little bit because my conscience was seared. Now, I may be the only truthful guy in here, but when you were lost, you were the same way. You might have been a little bit more polite about your lostness, but you were lost. Don't lie to yourself. You were absolutely a child of hell as much as Adolf Hitler was. Absolutely a child of hell. There was nothing in good in you whatsoever. Because if there was anything good in you, the Bible's lying. Nothing good in you. So we gotta we have we have to arrange that meeting between truth and those people whose hearts and con hearts are stony, consciences are seared. But at the same time, for you and I, there is a cost right now for sin. Believer, sin will destroy your peace, it will destroy your life. Get that through your head. There is no room in our lives for sin. There is sin. I'm not preaching this enough of perfection. I understand that either the man who speaks to you is a sinner saved only by the overwhelming grace of God. And everything I say on this topic is so hypocritical. Because there's, there's sin that I'm repenting of every day in my life. But I'm coming to you to warn you as some of you have warned your children. Right? You had messed up in a certain way and your child was just about to follow that path. And what did you do? 
You warned them. You know why? Not because you were perfect, because you had fallen. You had stumbled. You had broken your leg on a shoddy path. And you wanted to make sure that your children didn't follow in your mistakes. So that's why I stand before you and do this. Not because I am perfect. Far, far, far from it. Because I understand exactly what sin will take away from the believer. It will strip everything away. And if you think about the Christian lives around you, how many of them have been almost destroyed by sin? Sin is an enemy. And we must regard it as an enemy. And we can't play around with it. It is not folly. It is not fun. Consider the testimony of the Scriptures concerning the impact of sin and the warning that's extended by our Lord concerning the cost. I mean, over and over again. Think about specifically John. John in 1 John 2.15, he explains, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That, that language could not be any more clear. Now, I want you to understand how the Bible offers, you know, in my passion, please, give me a chance to catch my breath. Um, to understand in, my pa- in, 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 in the Bible how the Bible deals with sin in our lives. The Bible is going to warn you, believer, constantly that you are never allowed to look unredeemed. It's going to warn you constantly, believer, to have nothing in your life that looks like it does not bear the marks of Christ. Now people have asked me all sorts of questions. One of the questions I used to get all the time when we first started down that, that path of madness was, can believers go to the casino? Is there sin there? Then no. N-O, giant letters, taller than this church, no. Abstain from all appearance of evil. The Bible is abundantly clear about this with the giant catch-alls. But it goes for anything else. If somebody is, if there's open and blatant sin somewhere, can we go there? Absolutely not. You know why? Because if you're a believer, that's got no place in our lives. That's it. Bottom line. People don't like that. People get mad at me every time I say it. Sorry. I would rather warn you than have you just fall headlong into something. This is the reality. The reality is this, is that sin is so destructive, it's got no place with us. The problem I've got is not with kids. I've said this over and over, it's not with kids, it's with adults. We start to get a little bit of money, a little bit of experience, we start thinking we own the world. And we start thinking we can do whatever we want to do. And that is a lie of Satan that trips up grandmas and grandpas. I never in a million years thought you would have a church like we do in the 21st century where you couldn't just trust, you could not trust your young people, you had to not trust your old people. Because everybody had this idea that well, everybody's got their own problems. Look, I know they do, and I've got plenty of them. I'll be blunt with you. I've got plenty of problems. And there's lots of sin in my life that I'm worrying against every single solitary day. But I'm here to tell you that I at least will come to you admit that I know it's got no place in my life. But there are people who will stand up and try to defend sinful behavior as if God doesn't care. And that's a lie, folks. Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that's what he says clearly. You are on thin ice. Thin ice. Between, and all that separates you between loving the world and hating your Father is that membrane, that cellophane of ice. And you can hear it cracking. Do not love the things of this world. If you do, the love of the Father is not in you. Lost sinners are claimed by divinely applied truth from the snares of the world. As Christ teaches in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Look, sinners who remain in the world receive a claim for their loyalty from the lost and dying world. And those who reject the world and are called out of it by Christ, all they get is hatred. Look, if you, if you went through, and I'm not going to bullet them, but if you went through, folks, and you're, if you're struggling with faith ever in your life, you got some things here that you can apply to that column. You can say, okay, how do I deal with my faith? First things are, do I love the world? If, I'm, if I am actively seeing my hatred for the world and the things of this world grow, then guess what? I, I pretty much know I belong to Christ. If I see the world's hatred for me growing and not its acclaim for me, then I belong to Christ. Same time, redeemed believers are sent into the world by Christ. To risk everything for the gospel. That's the hard part. I've said this so many times. It's such a childish thing to say. But I'll say it again. I don't care. Here's the deal. It would be so much easier for us if we literally came to Christ and just fell over dead. Do you know what I mean? 13 or 30 or 40 or 50. Just, just transformed. Reborn right there in that instant. And the next thing, your funeral. The Christian life would be easy then. But the fact of the matter is the Christian life isn't easy at all. God has saved us from this world, but yet where do we live? Right here, in the midst of all this temptation, attack and hatred, aggression, everything you see around you is a contradiction to the Word of God. Everything. We see all that and we're left right here. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 10 verse 16. He says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. How are we sent out? Sheep in the midst of wolves. What are we surrounded by? Wolves. What are we protecting ourselves against? Wolves. Why preach against sin? Why preach against false prophets and heretics? Because they're wolves. As we said many times from this pulpit, what do you do with wolves? You shoot them or you let them be. You act. Or you embrace your cowardice. Midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents. And innocent as doves. Our Savior knew how difficult it would be to live. And to serve as witnesses in the wor this world of contradictions. Of shifting morality. Now that's what we talked about Wednesday night. And that's one of those things that I find particularly troubling. It's not just the fact that used to we were... Um, y'all, maybe some of y'all remember this. Christians used to be perceived in our culture as that guy standing in the corner with a members-only jacket and his pants rolled at the bottom. 
Anybody old enough to know what I'm talking about there? Some of you are smiling, you do. Members only was that jacket with a little strap that came across. Some old men out there still wear them. They still got them. Because your old men don't throw away things once they get old. They keep them a long time. Long time. They get their money out of it. It's like a $20 jacket. It wasn't that expensive. But um, that's out of date, right? His clothes are out of date and the behavior's out of date. Used to, we were quaint. Oh, it's little Christians over there. Oh, they believe all this stuff, but we know it's nonsense. Oh, they're just funny like that. And they're just backwards. And they think the earth's flat. It's not that way anymore, folks. Morality's turned upside down. What was once dark is now light. What was once light is now dark. What was once sweet is now bitter and bittersweet, right? What we believe is now immoral. Because it's been replaced by a brand new morality that says that everything that we, that, that God despises is now beneficial. It's now treated with acclaim and validity. It's celebrated. That's the nature of the world we live. I find it hard to struggle in that world. Maybe you don't. I do. That's my confession. Shifting morality and indulgence. Indulgence. See, that's what gets us. See, that's that's I know I'm a believer, but I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go where I want to go and do what I want to do. Because God doesn't really care about stuff like that. That indulgent nature of sin that wants to feed its own gut, right? catches hold in the body of believers and then we start acting the way they do. Which is not a big deal. God wasn't serious. Show me one place God's not serious. Show me one place in the Bible God's just joking. If God condemns something, it is condemned. But we'll take on that attitude of indulgence. We can't afford an attitude of indulgence. Loving the world is the condemnation of the lost man or woman. And it is the unwavering obstacle for the believer. What God does at salvation is plant in us the heart that He now can mold in His image. And that seed of hating the world and loving Christ. So that as my love for Christ increases, my hatred for the ways and the sins of this world also increases. Because he has got to rewire me emotionally. He's got to rewire me in terms of priority. And he's got to do it to us all. James, the brother of Christ, warns us in James 4.4. You adulterous people. Now that's strong language. Even in the 21st century, there's really few things left that everybody can agree are wrong. Most people agree that adultery is still wrong. It's just wrong. It's just wrong to cheat on your husband. It's wrong to, to cheat on your wife. It's wrong to do that. James, because remember when James was writing this, there were a lot more things condemned. Nowadays, almost nothing's condemned by the broader culture. When James said this, he says, you're just adulterers. Hey, hey, Southerners, you want a better term? Trash. Here's trash. Trash. Does it get your attention? You ever been called trash before? Get your attention, doesn't it? It doesn't just besmirch you, it besmirches your entire lineage. James meant for us to pay attention. You adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That if you're going to be friends with the world, you are saying I'm God's enemy. 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's not just loving it. We can't even be friends with it. We are separating ourselves from the world. Describing anyone who would cling to the world over Christ and His truth as adulterers. James tells us that the world's friendship is to be God's enemy. A state that condemns the lost and decimates the testimony and fellowship of the saved. John enhances his previous argument by writing in 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Everything that catches our attention, that allures us and entices us, is not from God, but from the world. For the lost, those hearing the words of the cross today, or my brothers and sisters who find themselves caught in the agony of a close relationship with the world around them, and a failing companionship with Christ. Have you ever felt like that? I felt like that. Those are my words about me. I felt exactly like that. That I felt like my relationship with the world was stronger than my relationship with Christ. Than that fellowship, that companionship that's supposed to sustain us throughout our entire lives. That I knew more about what was going on in the broader culture than what was going on in my devotion life. I felt like a wedge had been driven between me and my Lord. If you felt like that, pay attention. John reminds us the world's composed only of carnal desires, corrupted ambitions, and deceitfully covetous temptations. It's all it is. It's all, it's all a demonic hustle that wants to separate you from the power that's supposed to flow in you. God wants you to trade that dark exchange. The glory of God. For some type of temporary, temporary quiet. It's a massive trap. World so is so destroyed by the curse and so hostile to, to, to Christian belief that only the return of Christ will make this world appropriate for our flourishing. We weren't ever made to get along here. We weren't ever made to be happy here. We weren't ever made to find peace and satisfaction here. All, everything about us is hostile to us. We are living on Mars. Everything about us is destructive to who we are as believers. The only time it's not going to be that way is when Christ rules it. Thank God that this world actively fails. As John writes in verse 17, And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Praise God, this world is ending and the desires. One of these days, all of us around us that, that allures us, that tempts us, that tries out the, the that tries our patience and, and tries to drag back to the surface that dead man or that dead woman, it's all going to die. It's going to end. Praise God, it's going to be judged with fire. But when we do the will of God, we abide with Him forever. All that tempts the believer and ensnares the lost, crippling their ability to reject darkness and commit to light, currently passes away. The Lord Jesus speaks to the struggling church and draws the heart of the lost when He says in John 16.33, I have said these things to you that in Me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take heart, 
I have overcome the world. Through the gospel message, Christ offers peace. The legitimate and surpassing peace that comes only through the Savior. Look, no matter the challenges of your life today, all the heartbreak or the disappointment, the frustration, the anger, the addiction or the malice, Jesus gives peace in Himself through the Gospel. The world only brings weeping and shame, suffering and death. On Calvary, Christ Jesus shed His blood to defeat the world. To atone for your sin. To free you from the bondage of humiliation and death. And to overcome the world so that in the Savior, you are no longer subject to this world. There's the problem. We still act like there are shackles on our feet and on our hands. We are set free. The bonds that are there are of our imagination. Broken. Stricken from us. Destroyed are those bonds. Never to be applied again. The slavery they represented ended for you on Calvary. Forever. Free. Free indeed, as Christ says it. Free. Free from the bondage of sin. Free from the slavery to the flesh. You can and you must serve God with your body. First and foremost. Peter's warning in the two examples that he gives uh, in the focal passage uh, is simple and clear. Through Christ's gospel, turn your back to sin and never return to that life. There's the warning. The people who go back are lost. As Peter's saying, people who go back, they're lost. They've turned their back on the joy of Christ. So whatever you do, never turn back. Fight it as hard as you can. Look, pay close attention to the verbiage of the first example. Peter says, the dog returns to its own vomit. Well, our culture's dog friendly and often regards canines as something akin to human. The Middle East of the first century did not have the same affinity for dogs. In fact, dogs were viewed as scavenging mongrels who fed on the refuse of human existence. The way they thought about dogs is the way we would think about rats or cockroaches. Wherever people went, they went feeding off our refuse. Remember the descriptions of Gehenna where the garbage dump, where the fires were used to burn the garbage, and the gnashing of teeth were dogs fighting over scraps in Gehenna. Now how you feel about your dog is not the issue here. But the issue is this, is that they regarded the idea of being a dog as the lowest form of life. Something with no scruples, no morals. The dog returns to its vomit because it's always a dog. It never stopped being a dog, right? You can buy the the sweetest dog in the world and spend lots and lots of money on it and, and, and send it to obedience school and all those kinds of things. And if you do not watch out, that dog will eat its own droppings. Because obedience school didn't take. It didn't undog the dog, did it? It's still a dog. 
even if it is gorgeous food that makes it sick, it will still lap up this poison because that is what, in the first century mind, dirty dogs do. The change that's essential, the transformation from lost to saved, from the dead to the living, from a child of hell to a son or daughter of heaven, has never truly taken place. The dog remains a mutt and never becomes something useful or redeemed. When it goes back, that's because all that it can do is return to what's always been. Similarly, the sow that, that had washed went back to wallowing in the mire. Again, the same point is clear. The pig never stopped being what? A pig. Always attracted to the mud and muck of life, the swine washed for a season but went straight back to what was most familiar. Now I've told you there is still lingering within us, there can very well be a desire at times, at least an acknowledgement of the convenience of living an old way. How easy it would be. So, so Peter writes this because he knows the struggle is real for everybody. He knows there's not one group of people that the lights have all been turned on and everybody else is just in darkness. Some are still in darkness, but others have this dim light of the gospel. And it's growing in its intensity every day. But it hasn't chased away all the darkness yet. So he knows what has to struggle with is. That's why we're reminded, forcefully reminded. Look, the key to both is in the language. Peter uses the Greek word epistrepho, translated consistently throughout almost all the translations, as return. Now, I'm not going to dicker with them about the translations. I'm not qualified. I'll be honest with you. The guys that translate the ESV know way more than me. The people that translate the NASV know way more than me. Gosh, the guys who translate the KGV know more than me. Everybody knows more than me. There's no doubt about that. I'm not even being generous about this point. They've just studied this stuff. They know it. Me, criticizing their, their translations is kind of childish. But I would say this. I think there's a clearer understanding of this word. And that is to see it not as return but is revert back. Or come to yourself. Or come again to yourself. Look, the implication again is the dog never stopped being a dog and the swine was never able to become anything but a pig. Returning is positive implications. When you return home, that's a good thing. 99% of the time, right? You ever been in a really, really bad day in a really, really bad place and you said to yourself, all I want to do is go home? Everybody in this room has been there at some point. Returning home is virtually always a pleasurable thing. Occasionally, not. But reverting back is a different thing entirely, isn't it? Reverting means going back to a lifestyle or a habit that's antisocial and destructive. He reverted back. We had him trained and he reverted back. Or hey, how about this one? We were potty trained and reverted back. Does that ever happen? All the time. Couple good days. Then a couple bad days, right? Because we, we reject it, naturally. We revert back. Reverting back means go back to a lifestyle that's not one you want. The difference is that Christ does not offer some kind of decisional commitment to a new philosophy. That is what has caught the dog and the pig who never intended to stop being what they were. They liked being where they were, but they never intended to give up anything. Let me tell you, you can, there's not a single thing in your life you can give up to get the cross. There's nothing you have in your life that's worth the cross. 
Write the biggest check you can write. I don't care if you're Jeff Bezos. The cross is of infinite value. His tiny amount of money is no more substantial than mine. It's nothing in comparison to the cross. Nothing you can do or pay or give up or accomplish to receive the cross. But I'll tell you what, when the cross lands upon your back, when the truth lands upon your back, you're supposed to be ready to give up what? Everything. It's the pearl of great price. You know where it's buried. You sell everything you got and go buy that field. You buy a worthless field because you know the pearl of great price is buried in it. It's worth everything we have. Should I stay away from certain places because of the cross? Absolutely. Why? Because the cross is more glorious than any place you can go. But we're looking here for a real, an authentic, supernatural transformation. The pig and the dog never got that. In John 3, 3, Christ answered that the entire world is truly, truly, yes, I do. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Not deciding to do something different than you have done before. A diet from sin, a New Year's resolution that fails in January, turning over a new leaf. All those are the things people are capable of doing. I mean, but being born again. Born again. From heaven, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel, so that all the penalty of sin is heaped on Christ. I don't mean pledging allegiance to a new flag. I mean surrendering everything to Jesus Christ. The old man or the old woman that you are has to die. And a new one is raised in their place. In legitimate New Testament salvation. In being born again from above. The pig is no longer a pig. And the dog stops being a dog. The Apostle Paul outlines for us how this happens in Romans 12 too, Where he writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Again, we get that idea of transforming. What was once one thing, now is something Totally different. That's transformation. Renovation is to take something old and spruce it up. Transformation makes everything new. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. The marks of the inward change. The renewal driven transformation that's brought on by the gospel are all outward. The proof is in the life. Why talk about sin? Because the proof of your salvation is in your life and not in your heart. Now I've told you this before and I've used this as an example. There are lies I told as a small child to get myself out of trouble that I spent decades trying to remember that they were lies. I told them so much I started to believe them myself. The human heart is so weak it can be convinced of anything. It's not in your heart. It's in your life. As returning to vomit or mire is reverting to the untransformed man or woman, the person made whole by Christ is born again. As Peter describes in 1 Peter 1, 22-23, as those who are made pure by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly devotion, brotherly love. Love one another earnestly. 
from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. At the intersection of the new heart, the new spirit, men and women are born again, not of the perishable seed of human commitment, but of the imperishable seed of the implanted and growing Word of God. Now, why in the world turn our back on so many things in our life that, that everybody else says is okay and at one time we had no problem with? Because the Word's been implanted and it just won't let us. Because when the Bible says it, we regard it as wrong. We can have no fellowship between the light that's in us and the darkness that's in this world. No kinship, no society. The final product is found in Romans 12.9. Paul writes that love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Let love be genuine. Believers will practice genuine love for Christ, for the church, and for the lost. Not fake love. Genuine love. Real love. Our lives, transformed daily into the image of our Lord and Savior, will hate the evil. That we once loved. We once loved that stuff. And God's making us hate it. Hear what I said? Hate it. It turns your stomach. You abhor it. You can't stand it. It's also cultivating new desires for the good that at one time we mocked. That's the big one too for me. At one time... I am now, God is actively making me hate the things I used to love and love some things that I used to make fun of. I used to think were corny. And God's making me love those things. Christ calls the lost to be set free from sin and the saved to live in real love, a life that illustrates the glory of the coming kingdom. Your life as the example of the truth of the gospel and your life, everyday church, as proof that Christ dwells in you. All I can say at this time, and I've said enough, I've gone longer than my time, is if your life does not illustrate the truth of the gospel right now at this moment, then you have business at the cross today. Don't put that off. Don't linger another moment in the shadows when you can live in the light. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank